I'd like to invite you to stand with me as in honor of the reading of God's word. We're reading from Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. And uh, we're answering the question, or Pastor Bruce is answering the question, what will it take to let them hear? It's page one, uh, 632 in your pew Bible, if you don't have a Bible or uh, with you. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. Follow along as I read. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Verse 4, therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to, to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for uh, the opportunity as, as a church to partner with ministries, um, making your word available to unreached people groups in their native lang language. And Father, we uh, thank you for um, Pastor Bruce and his uh, desire to teach through the book of Acts expositionally and, and share uh, what is uh, laid upon his heart by your spirit and by your word. Touch us today, open up our hearts and minds to hear from you that we may be changed and motivated to be more like you and to share you with those around us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, I want to begin with a question, a question that I hope you will consider with me this morning, and that is, how did you come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? Think back to before your salvation experience, before you believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ for your salvation, before God granted you eyes of faith to see yourself as a sinner who was in need of the Savior Jesus Christ. In other words, think back to when you were still lost in your sins. How did you come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? You know, the answer for all of us is, is going to look a little different, but it really, the answer comes down to this. We came to know Christ after hearing about Christ. And your salvation story is... It's personal, it's unique, it's different. How you heard the gospel is different from the person next, sitting next to you. And it's unique for all of us. And how you came to know Christ after hearing about Christ is really nothing short of God's amazing grace. And so your salvation story is personal to you, but, but your salvation story is also very powerful. I tell people that, uh, that I came from a life of drugs. 
Since my dad was a pastor, I was drugged to church every time the doors were open. I was drugged on Sunday mornings to church, Sunday nights to church, Wednesday nights, Thursday nights, Saturday morning. I was drugged to church all my life since my dad was the pastor. I'm being facetious about all that. Not really, because I truly was in church all my life. And so I heard the gospel of Jesus Christ all my life. There's not a point in my life when I cannot remember not hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet, when I was 11 years old, that's when God opened my heart. And it was like I was hearing the gospel for the very first time. And that's when I knelt and confessed my sins, asked God to forgive me of my sins, and invited Jesus to be my Savior and Lord. But it came after hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. So everyone's salvation story is personal. Everyone's is powerful. And yet there's this common thread that weaves through all of our stories. We first heard the gospel of Jesus Christ before we believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, no one comes to know Christ as their Savior without first hearing about Jesus Christ as the Savior. And so for this reason, it's imperative that people hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must make it our mission, in other words, to let them hear. This is the mission God has called us to. This is the mission that God has given to our church. It's the mission that God has given to each one of us who claim to be his Christ followers. Notice this in your notes. I invite you to follow along if you want to. Uh, pull out your sermon insert in, there in your bulletin. It's on the screen. God desires for every Christ follower to have spirit-filled passion and power to let them hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. What we're going to see in this series, Acts Part 2, here in chapters 8 through 12, is really a continuation of the mission that Jesus gave his followers back in Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, in verse 8, Jesus tells us this, this, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses. And they were. These early Christians... They were. Those first Christ followers let Jerusalem hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, the church there in Jerusalem, it exploded with growth. From 120 disciples in Acts 1, the church mushroomed to over 3,000 people in Acts chapter 2. They passed the 5,000 mark in Acts chapter 4. And then they just stopped counting. The number was so high. Scholars estimate that the Jerusalem church had grown to over 10,000 people. This tells us the mission of God. As we learned in the first part of this series, the mission of God was unstoppable. And so Jesus outlined this plan, a plan for his followers to take the gospel from Jerusalem as a home base to Judea and Samaria and ultimately to the ends of the earth. That was the mission and it's still the mission for God's church. But up to this point, up to this point in the book of Acts, they have not taken the gospel of Jesus Christ outside of Jerusalem. 
For whatever reason, the Gospel is pretty much stuck in the city of Jerusalem at this point here in Acts chapter 7. Perhaps they had gotten comfortable. Not that things were easy for the church. They were facing some adversity. They were facing some hostility. And as we're going to find out this morning, they even began to face some severe persecution. But in many ways, they had not yet begun to fulfill the rest of the plan that Jesus laid out in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. They have not moved beyond the city of Jerusalem to let them hear. And so here's the question. What will it take to let them hear? What will it take to let them hear? In other words, what will it take so all peoples of all nations can hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. What we're going to see this morning is the answer to this. It often takes persecution of the church to spur proclamation of the gospel to all peoples. God uses the persecution of His people to spur the proclamation of His gospel. It's not God's only way, but it does seem to be a frequent way. So what will it take? What will it take to let them hear? Persecution is often the means that God uses to spur proclamation. And that's what we see here in Acts 8. A great wave of persecution hits the church. And the church is scattered. And those who were persecuted and scattered proclaimed the Gospel everywhere they went. So what does this mean for us? What's what is the, the implications for us, the application for us as a church and, and for even our lives in a personal way? Well, because there are people all around us, we need to answer these questions. People all around us who still need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what will it take? Well, listen, look at this. Number one, God sovereignly uses suffering for scattering. He sovereignly uses suffering for scattering. Look what it says in Acts 8, going back to verse 1 here. It says, Now Saul was consenting to his death. Whose death? Well, Stephen's death. Stephen was the first Christian martyr. He has just been brutally stoned to death by the Jewish religious, religious leaders for proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ with conviction and courage. The church in Jerusalem has now lost one of its own. A man who Luke tells us was, a, was full of grace and power. He was a man who was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was a man who was appointed to serve the widows in the church. And so Stephen's death was a great loss. And it brought about great sorrow. So it's easy to understand why in verse 2, we, Luke tells us here, and devout men carried Stephen to his burial, and they made great lamentation over him. Now can you imagine moving the pile of rocks and uncovering the broken, bloody body of Stephen to bury him? No wonder they made what Luke defines as great lamentation over his death that day. In other words, there was great sorrow in the Jerusalem church. But Stephen's death was just the beginning. In fact, his death actually became the catalyst for persecution against the Jerusalem church. Luke tells us in verse 1, 
at that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And so for these early Christ followers, Stephen's funeral only promised more funerals. It was now open season on Christians, which resulted in this mass exodus out of Jerusalem all of which somewhat reminds me of the thousands of Christians who are now fleeing Iraq and Syria. And I'm sure you've seen pictures or images of this. Christians fleeing for their lives, leaving behind their homes, leaving their possessions, leaving their businesses, and even leaving their church behind. Luke then describes the prime persecutor of all of this in verse 3 when he says, As for Saul... He made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. And so if you can imagine this scene with me, if you can imagine what's going on, it must have been a, a horrific time in Jerusalem as homes were ransacked and men and women were dragged away to prison. When Luke says that Saul made havoc of the church, He's using a Greek word here that indicates a, a brutal and sadistic cruelty on behalf of Saul. In fact, the, the term here, the phrase that's being used, it means to destroy, to ruin, or to damage. In fact, the same word is used to describe a wild beast as it tears apart its prey and then drags its prey away to devour it later. That is the image that Luke wants us to have in mind. And so Saul was like this wild beast ravaging the church, tearing the church apart limb by limb as he entered house after house and dragged off men and women to prison. Folks, make no mistake about this. This is bloody. This is ugly. This is grim. Saul is in the business of destroying the church in Jerusalem. As one commentator writes, following the church through Acts is like following a wounded deer through a forest. Drops of blood mark the trail. All of which may cause us to even ask ourselves now, man, where was God in all of this? Didn't, didn't God know what was happening to his church here? Yes! Absolutely, indeed, God knew what was happening. Let me tell you, Saul didn't catch God off guard. God was in total control. God was sovereignly using the suffering of the church for His glory. In fact, I want you to check this out. I want to show you how God rules over our suffering. First of all, number one here, God makes persecution of the church serve the mission of the church. We see this in verse 1. Look at it again with me. It says, at that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now, the regions of Judea and Samaria ought to ring a bell for us. In fact, remember what Jesus said back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8? But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. Up until now, the gospel had been confined to Jerusalem. No one was signing up to go to Judea and Samaria to let them hear the gospel. 
But one way or another, the gospel must spread into the whole world. As Jesus said in the Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations or of all people groups, including Judea and Samaria. And so God used persecution here. He used the suffering of His people to literally move His people into the mission that He had given them. In what appeared to be a a great tragedy, a a great calamity, the followers of Christ were scattered to Judea and Samaria, fulfilling the mission of the church that Jesus had given it. And so in this way, God actually used Satan's attempts to stop the church to actually advance the church. Now the lesson here is obvious for us all. God is sovereign. God is sovereign, God is in control, and God rules over our lives. He rules over the church, and He even rules over suffering. But the danger here is not so obvious. We can fall into the Jerusalem trap, if I can call it that, right here with our church in Kansas City. We can start to see the church as an address, as a location, a place where we come and worship together and serve together, but we must always value the life of the church over the location of the church. Yes, we gather here as worshipers on Sunday, but then we go out of the church as witnesses where we live, where we work, where we play, where we learn at school. And it's when we scatter from this place that we carry out the mission that Jesus has given to us, the mission to let them hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. A second aspect here of how God rules over our suffering is God actually turns adversaries of the church into advocates of the church or for the church. Luke tells us that Saul was the prime adversary of the church here in Jerusalem. And yes, you are correct in assuming that this Saul is also the one who would later come to know Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord and who would become the best advocate of the church that it ever had. What's staggering about this is the difference between the Saul that we see here in Acts chapter 8 and the Saul that appears in the rest of Acts in the New Testament. The difference is staggering. The Saul of Acts 8 tried to destroy the church, but the Saul in Acts 9 devoted his energies to build the church. In Acts 8, he did everything he could to stop the church. After Acts 9, he did everything he could to advance the church. And so the contrast between the Saul here in Acts 8 and the Saul in Acts 9 and later, the contrast is remarkable. It's incredible. But folks, that's what happens when the grace of God works in people's lives. That's what happens when they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and when they receive and believe the gospel. Radical change takes place. That's the power of the gospel. This is the hope we proclaim in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, fearsome enemies can become precious friends. Adversaries can become advocates. Critics can become comrades. You know, for most of us, 
It's all too easy to believe that a friend can become a betrayer. That a friend can turn on us. We have no problem believing that. Just like Judas turned on Jesus. We have no issues believing that. Why? Because that's the way the world is. But we need to remember that a persecutor can also become a partner in the cause of Christ. For that is the way God is. When the gospel is heard and received and believed. So look on your adversaries with eyes of faith that someday, by the grace of God, they could experience a turnaround as amazing, as unexpected as Saul's. So just when suffering looked like a calamity for the church, God sovereignly used it for His plan to scatter the church. Which brings us now to our second point. God sovereignly uses scattering for proclaiming. He uses scattering for proclaiming. Listen, there was no doubt about it. Mark it down. This was a great, this was a time of great opposition in the life of the church. But God was using it as a time of great opportunity for the church. So how would these Christ followers respond? In fact, let me pose the question this way. How would you have responded? Think of yourself now as part of the Jerusalem church. How would you have responded in the midst of this persecution, in the midst of this suffering? Well, notice how these persecuted Christ followers responded in verse 4. Look what it says. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Now, what does it mean to be scattered? Well, scattered is this word here that Luke uses. It's actually an agricultural term. Uh, it, it's, you know, a farmer will scatter his seed, scatter his seed either by hand. Nowadays, we use machinery to do that. But a farmer will scatter his seed across his field to be planted. And out of that scattering of seed will come what? A harvest, a crop and a harvest. And in the same way as persecution scattered the church across the fields of Judea and Samaria, they carried the seeds of the gospel with them. One commentator writes, Warren Wiersbe says, persecution does to the church what wind does to seed. It scatters it and only produces a greater harvest. Here's what Tertullian said when writing about the persecution of the church. Kill us, torture us, condemn us, grind us to dust. The more we are mown down by you, the more in number we grow. The blood of Christians is seed. Now don't miss what these Christ followers did, though, when they were scattered. We must not overlook what they did. They do something very interesting. In fact, they do something very remarkable. Luke says they went everywhere doing what? Preaching the word. Now this word preaching here, what do you think of when you hear the word preaching? I'm sure most of you think of what I'm doing right now. Does that mean all the people in the church, like me, lay people in the church, they were standing up before crowds and preaching? No, that's not the meaning of this word. You're going, oh, thank you. That's not the idea of this word here. 
And so it doesn't mean what Peter even did on the day of Pentecost. We saw on the day of Pentecost, Peter stood up and he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ and 3,000 people came to know Christ. And so this word here does not have the idea of standing up before a large crowd and preaching to them like what we commonly think of preaching. No, instead, this word simply means to spread the good news. Or it means to be a bringer of good news. One commentator even writes, it's gossiping the gospel. That's interesting. Gossiping the gospel. Now, we all know how to do that, right? We all know what it means to gossip. And that's the idea here. We're gossiping the gospel. In other words, it's sharing the gospel. It's spreading the gospel. Now, this is amazing. Adversaries of the gospel thought persecution would squelch the gospel, but it actually spread the gospel louder and farther. This means these persecuted and scattered Christ followers became, in other words, the very first missionaries of the church. They went everywhere spreading the good news of the gospel to people that had not heard it yet. Everywhere they went, they, they let them hear Jesus. They were not quiet about Jesus. Oh no, they were identifying themselves with Jesus, and then they were talking about Jesus as their Savior and Lord. Folks, listen to me. When you are a Christ follower, there is no being ashamed to identify yourself with the Savior and to talk about Him. They're talking about Jesus in the marketplace. They're talking about Jesus as they find new places to live, new places to work. Everywhere they went, it says, they let them hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, what an incredible example to us. What a challenge to us. In fact, what, what conviction this brings to our lives here this morning. They were scattered for the sake of the gospel. And so what does this mean for us today? How should we apply this to our own lives? Well, notice this. We are to be a movement of missionaries, if I can say it that way. We are to be a movement of missionaries proclaiming or sharing the gospel everywhere we go. Did you notice that it was not the apostles who were scattered? The apostles stayed back in Jerusalem to nurture and pastor and take care of the church. Rather, it was men and women in the church who were scattered in sharing the gospel. Justo Gonzalez, who is a, a church historian, writes, listen to what he says, most missionary work of the church in the first century was not carried out by the apostles, but rather by the countless and nameless Christians who, for different reasons, from persecution to business, traveled from place to place, taking the good news of the gospel with them. There is something beautiful and incredible about what these Christ followers did in sharing the gospel everywhere they went. As Everett Harrison notes in his commentary, they left as missionaries rather than refugees. We might have expected something quite different than this. We might have expected these Christ followers to flee Jerusalem saying nothing about Jesus 
for fear of raising further persecution in their new places of life. We might have expected them to lie low, to hide somewhere in caves until the, until the trouble died down a little bit. And so it's astonishing that these men and women are consumed with sharing and spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ everywhere they went. But those who know the love of Jesus, oh, they find it difficult to keep quiet about that Jesus. These early believers, listen, this, and again, this is so amazing, they... Think about this with me. They, they weren't thwarted by the sorrow of suffering. They weren't daunted by the challenges of displacement. Instead, they were empowered by the Holy Spirit to be witnesses of Jesus. And that's just what they did and who they were. Oh, that we as a church body, we as individual Christ followers, that we, we may see ourselves as a, quote, movement of missionaries sharing the gospel everywhere we go. Of all the things that Luke could have written about these believers here, of all the things he could have written about them, and there were many things he could have written, he could have said a lot of different things about them. But of all the things that he writes about them, of all the things that, that God, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to Luke to write this, of all the things that Luke writes that God wants us to take away from them, he writes, they went everywhere proclaiming Jesus. That is what characterizes them. That is what defines them in essence. And I pray that might be said of us. As already mentioned, we're a church that gathers here, but then we leave here and scatter all over the city where we live, where we work and eat and shop and go to school. And so may someone write of us, oh, that church at Glenwood, let me tell you, they went everywhere sharing Jesus. Would that not be said of us? Would that not be written of us? So far we've seen God sovereignly uses suffering for scattering, and then God sovereignly uses scattering for proclaiming, which brings us to our third point. God sovereignly uses proclaiming for rejoicing. When we come to verse 6, the scene shifts. It shifts from this general example of Christ followers proclaiming Christ to a, a specific example of Philip proclaiming Christ. Look what it says again in verses 6 through 8. It says, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed, and there was great joy in that city. Now don't overlook the significance of this when Luke says... Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. Philip, who's this guy? Well, it's believed that this Philip is the same Philip that's mentioned back in Acts chapter 6 and verse 8, or verse 5. The same Philip who was one of the seven men appointed to serve the widows in the church. In fact, Philip is even listed right after Stephen. And so it's very likely that in addition to being fellow servants in the ministry, 
Philip and Stephen were probably close friends in life as well. Do you think it hurt Philip to see Stephen murdered? Do you think there was a little sorrow in his heart, a little grieving going on? It must have crushed Philip. It must have broken his heart to see his bloody body and to lay him to rest in a tomb. But Philip then does something. Philip did something that we all must do if we're going to fulfill the mission of the church. In the midst of his suffering, in the midst of his grieving, Philip, we're told, went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. Philip did not turn away from his faith in God. He did not lose his trust in Christ. He did not go have a pity party. He did not sulk and whine and say, God, this is not fair. You've taken my best friend. He did not do any of those things. He did not hide out in a cave. He did not hide out in his bedroom or his house. He did not do any of that. He did what we all must do in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of trials and suffering and heartaches in whatever circumstances that God brings into our lives. He let them hear. He proclaimed the hope of Christ to the city of Samaria. Where did Philip proclaim Christ? Now, the city of Samaria. For some of you, you're like, whoa. That's no small thing. Let me explain why that's no small thing. You've got to understand the background to this city in relation to Jerusalem and the Jews. For hundreds of years, the Jews and the Samaritans, oh, they loved each other. Wrong. They hated each other. If you think Israelis and Palestinians, you've got the right idea here. The Jews looked down on the Samaritans as religious heretics. They looked down on them as racial half-breeds. The Samaritan religion mixed the Old Testament with paganism. And the Samaritans themselves were a mix of half-Jew and half-Gentile. And so the Jews, they viewed, they thought of the Samaritans, they viewed them with deep suspicion and hostility. In fact, a a popular prayer in those days goes like this. And Lord, do not remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. The implication being, Lord, send them to hell. That is the hostility between these two. And you can be sure the Samaritans felt the same way about the Jews. And so there is no love lost here between these two groups of people. And yet, and yet, in the midst of his own suffering and grieving, here's Philip crossing cultural and racial boundaries to do what? To proclaim the gospel to the Samaritans. To let them hear Philip's message of what he proclaimed. Let me tell you, it was all about Christ. It was full of Christ. And so they heard the name of Christ, according to verse 6, and they saw the power of Christ in verse 7. And when they believed, as Luke now later tells us down in verse 12, let me tell you, they experienced the joy of Christ here according to verse 8. Let me tell you, this is true for everybody, no matter what the background. This is the good news of our salvation. This is the good news that we 
are called to proclaim. Healing. Look at this in your notes. Healing in receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ brings what? What did it bring to your life? It brings great joy, does it not? I think as Luke is writing this, I think he wants us to see another contrast here going on. Think about this with me. Luke starts in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. He starts this chapter with great suffering in one city. And now he's ending this section with great rejoicing in another city. In fact, the very gospel that brought about suffering and scattering to the church in Jerusalem, listen, it is still good news and brings great joy to those who hear it and receive it. That's what the gospel always does. And the joy it brings, listen, this is not a joy that's artificial. It's not a joy that's superficial. It's a joy in Jesus. It's a joy in salvation. It's joy in the forgiveness of sins. It's joy in being reconciled to God. It's joy in the gift of eternal life. And so if you have Jesus, if you know Him, if you trust Him as your Savior and Lord, then no matter how great the suffering in life, you have hope and you have joy. This is why God calls us to let them hear. Hearing and receiving the gospel brings great joy. And it's not temporary. It's not the joy that, that our world thinks of. No, this is the joy that God gives to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so I urge you here this morning to not only hear the gospel, but to receive the gospel. That is, to, to put your faith in Jesus Christ for your salvation. And if you do, then great joy will be true for you. Listen, great joy can be your testimony. And I hope that is your testimony. I pray that, that you, when you talk about what God has done for you and your salvation, that there is great joy in your life. And if not... Oh, if you don't know this kind of joy here, what better time than during our response time to confess your sins before God and call upon the One who has the power to forgive you and to grant you eternal life and to give you a joy that surpasses anything this world could ever offer you. Do you know that kind of joy in the Lord? I want to end with a question. We began with a question. I want to end with a question. And that question is this. What will it take for you, as well as for myself, to let them hear? What will it take for you to let them hear? And I want to encourage you, you know, as a way to answer this question, to embrace your place. Embrace your place for sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with the people around you. Now, let, let, me, let me walk you through this. Let me explain what I mean here. And I know you just filled in the last blank in your notes, and you're kind of putting everything away, so you can focus here now a little bit. The idea is this. Embrace the place 
where God has put you in life. And embrace the place of what God is taking you through in life. And embrace it as your God-given place for sharing the gospel. So, first of all, I encourage you to embrace your place where God has put you in life for sharing the gospel. Do you ever think about God's sovereignty in regards to the place that God has put you right now? Think about the place where you live. When you leave here to go home. Think about the place where you work. So tomorrow morning when you get up and you get in your car to drive, Think of place, the place about where you go to school. I know, that's a fun thought, isn't it? Think about your neighbors. Think about your coworkers. Think about your classmates. You have contact with these people weekly. And here's what I want you to think about. God is sovereign over where you live. God is sovereign over where you work. God is sovereign over where you learn. And so embrace your place as the place that God has you for sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with those people. Now I know some of you may be here this morning and, and where you're at now in life, the place you're at, you're like, I didn't choose that, I don't want that, I just want to get out of that. I can't leave fast enough, but if I had the means to leave that place, I would. And others of you are on the opposite extreme of that. You're like, I love the place I'm at. In fact, you're so comfortable, you love, it, you love it too much, you're too comfortable where you're at. Whatever category you're in, let me encourage you to embrace that place as a God-given place at this moment in your life, as a place from which to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it's not just embrace the place of where you're at in life. It's also the idea to embrace the place of what God is taking you through in life as a God-given place for sharing the gospel. Think about this with me. What has God brought into your life at this very moment? In the last week, in the last month, or perhaps even the last three or six months, what has God brought into your life? God can use difficult circumstances. God can use troubles and trials in your life for His glory. Yes, the enemy might mean it for evil, but God can sovereignly use it for the sake of the Gospel. Could it be? Could it be that the crisis in your life that seems so difficult right now, that you see no light at the end of the tunnel, could it be that God is really moving you to a better place so you can share the gospel? Listen, God wants to use your heartache to help someone else find hope in Jesus Christ. What you're going through is not by accident. And whether it's a result of your own choices in life, or whether it's a result because God divinely, sovereignly, 
intervene and put you in that situation. Either way, listen, God wants to use it for His glory. And God wants to use your suffering, your trials, and your heartache as a means for, and as a place for sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, the hope that is found in it. So believe that your present suffering, sufferings are for a sovereign reason. Embrace your place of suffering for sharing the gospel. But do you realize the reverse is also true? Man, God uses suffering and trials and heartaches in the lost to prepare their hearts for receiving the gospel. It's not just us as Christ followers. But there are people all around us that are hurting, which is not by accident either. And so perhaps your place where God has you, there are people around you where their place in life, God has intervened and intersected them to where you come in contact with them. And now their sufferings, God wants to use to open them up. I'll just share briefly just a quick example of this. The place where I'm at in my neighborhood, we've been there 17 years, over 18 years now. And one of our neighbors who we know very, very well in fact, I was sharing this with our, our grow group just last Sunday. And we've invited them to church I don't know how many times. They've never come. But we have good relationship with them. But six months ago, the lady of the house just grabbed her son and moved out. Unexplained to the man. Just moved out. No rhyme, no reason, no explanation. And Darla and I were like, what is going on? What is up with that? Nothing said, nothing. And so we actually were at dinner on a Monday night, and we, we saw our neighbor, uh, the man, at dinner. He was eating by himself. And uh, so I excused myself from our family. I went over there and sat, sat down at the table with him. And as soon as I began, hey, how's it going? I mean, that question, whoo, tears started flowing down his eyes. Darla came over, and we just kind of talked and, and listened to him a little bit. And we were in a public place, so he wasn't, you know, real open about everything, but he shared enough that I, we knew this guy is hurting big time. And so we told him, hey, we're going to pray for you. Would that be all right? Oh, yes, yes, please, please do. And so then, a few weeks later, I saw him in, the, in our neighborhood on our street. And this guy, he works a ton of hours. I don't, he, and he, go, he works out of the city a lot, traveling, so I don't, we don't have a lot of interaction with him. But he was home, and I saw him, and I stopped and just said, hey, how are you, how are you hanging in there? And again, the eyes just welled up. And so that gave opportunity. Here's a, here's a man who's hurting, suffering. And let me tell you, I believe it's not by accident but divinely, God is using that to open his heart to Jesus Christ. And I told him that. I said, and I told him, obviously called him by name and said, listen, my wife and I have been praying for you, and here's how I've been praying, that God will use this to open your heart to his son, Jesus Christ, because Jesus is the answer to what you're going through. It doesn't mean 
that you'll understand why you're going through it doesn't mean you, he, he will take it all away and reverse it. That doesn't happen. But there's hope in Jesus Christ. And we talked a little bit more about that. And he, he's starting to cry right then. And, and, um, and he could tell he, that was enough for, it, for him to handle right there. That's, that's my place. That's my place. That's my responsibility. To let him hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. I need to embrace my place. What about you? I'm encouraged. I hope you leave here. Embrace your place for sharing the gospel. There's a reason behind it. There's a purpose behind it where God has you. And that is to let them hear. The question is, what will it take? What will it take for you to let those people hear that God has put around your life? As we come to our response time here, here's how I want us to pray. That one, you would ask God, and you would say, God, help me to embrace the place you have me in life. Help me to see it as, as a launching pad, as a purpose for sharing the gospel. And then I want you to think about one person who needs to hear the gospel. And you pray for that person by name. That God would open up their heart to the gospel and that God would give you the passion and the power through His Spirit to share the gospel with that person. And that you would find opportunities to do just that. Will you pray with me in that regard for our response time? Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ that is the power of God for salvation. Father, give us a spirit-filled passion and power to let them hear the gospel. Help us to embrace the places in our life for sharing the gospel. And, oh, Lord, may it be said of us this week that we shared Christ everywhere we went. And may there be great joy in this church and in our communities and beyond as a result of hearing and receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ. As the Zach and the praise team sing, this is your opportunity. I encourage you, I plead with you to respond.